this is the Internet Report's bi-weekly pulse update, where we keep our finger on the pulse of how the internet is holding up week over week, exploring the latest outage numbers, highlighting a few interesting outages, trends, traits, and the general health of the internet. Today we'll be discussing insights from a recent trio of change and rollback incidents at Microsoft, Cloudflare, and Slack, along with other outage news, including the Comcast outage that impacted some Philadelphia neighborhoods on NFL's favorite Sunday. So but before we start, uh, in terms of housekeeping, we'd love for you to hit like and subscribe so you too can keep your finger on the pulse of the internet each week. Please keep your feedback coming in. It really is appreciated and it helps us to really shape the show. Reach out to us at any time at internetreport at thousandeyes.com and we'll do our best to address your questions in the future episodes. All right, so let's take a look at the numbers. So what we saw from the start of the year was we actually started to see this increase when outages got up and we sort of uh, put that down to the fact where people are coming up on board, there's maintenance work and we reflect back on to look at the time of day when these actually occurred from there. But then what we've seen this past couple of weeks is we started to see this trend reverse where we started to see, and we're talking about global outages here. So we saw initially a drop from 373 to 331, which is an 11% decrease when compared to January 23rd to 29. And then this downward trend continues with this global outage dropping again from 331 to 301, which is a 9% decrease compared to that previous week. When we look at those numbers from a domestic perspective, from a US numbers, we initially see them rising in this case. So they're going up from 102 to, to uh, 117, which is a 15% increase. And then when the, the following week, then we actually come into this trend where it should drop, where we drop from 117 to 73, which is a 38% uh, decrease uh, compared to the previous week that we got from there. Now, now, what makes this interesting or what we want to discuss here really is that what this then meant when we saw this increase coming up from there, so the US numbers rose that first stage, but the global numbers were decreasing, as it were, compared to the previous week. What this meant was that combined this fortnight together, we saw that US-centric outages accounted for 30% of all observed outages, which is larger than we, we, we observed between January 16th, 22nd and January 23rd, 29th were only accounted for 26% of the, uh, the observed outages. So what can we actually make of that? So typically what we start to talk about, and we look at this percentage of how they impacted, when we, we go back, and we've written about this quite a lot, in terms of how the US-centric uh, infrastructure from a provider uh, point of view has this sort of this global reach because of the way it's set up, the Quasi's architect around from there, you sometimes get sort of this domino effect. But interestingly enough, when we saw that increase coming in there from the US outages, it didn't necessarily have um, uh, the impact on the, 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 global, uh, the global numbers. And what I mean by that is that they now accounted for more of the outages. So we saw that rise from 26% of the outages to 30% of the outages um, being referred to by US-centric run from there. And what this means, or what we, what we can kind of take from that, is that the, when we'd normally see this going, this was an outage occurred in the US, like I said, this domino effect, we start to go from there, the infrastructure is structured if we're talking about sort of maintenance or even some sort of uh, outage occurs from there, just because of the interconnections from there. The interesting part was that the first week of February that we, we observed there, we saw this increase in domestic numbers, but it didn't have a dramatic impact specifically on the global numbers. Now, what we can actually take from there is that the, the, the outages you like were more controlled. So they're more localized around from, from that area there. So the, 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 the blast radius, as it were, was, was, was kind of uh, smaller and sort of more controlled. It'd be interesting to see how this goes as we start to develop this over the year. Um, typically, when I actually look back and I sort of average out over the year, I'm looking around sort of 40% of, um, or historically, I'm looking around 40% of US-centric uh, outages relative to the global outages there. 
So again, it sort of tracks low at the start of the year and comes up from there. So we, we, we'd like to see sort of how that goes as we go forward from there. Okay, so there's probably enough time on the numbers for this episode. Um, as I said, left to my own device, I probably could talk about it uh, uh, the whole episode there. Um, but as we've got quite a lot of hours to discuss this week, um, I think it's about time we take a look under the hood. All right, so we end our last installment of the weekly pulse with a look at the Microsoft outage, the network configuration change on January 25th that caused application reachability issues globally. And if you haven't seen our analysis yet, I really strongly encourage you to go and check out the blog, the podcast, where we go into sort of some detail. Um, but the reason I want to bring it up now is it wasn't the only change in rollback incident to occur in that time frame. So on January 24th, less than 24 hours for the Microsoft incident, and around 4.55 p.m. UTC, Several Cloudflare services experienced about two hours of downtime, uh, and this was down to a code deployment where it accidentally overwrote some service token metadata uh, before Cloudflare recognized it and sort of rolled it back. So before we take a look into this outage uh, and sort of how it manifested itself and how it came around from there, I want to just take a minute to, to describe what service tokens are and what they're used for. So at a very high level, a token-based authentication is a protocol that allows the user to verify their, their identity and they receive this in a, in a unique access token. So during the life of this token there, the users then access the website, the app, the token's been issued for. Um, so rather than having to keep re-entering your credentials, remember your password, sort of copy and paste from there. Uh, so you go back to the same web page. So it's this, this whole process of trying to, um, from a zero trust perspective, to try and uh, reduce the complexity to make security not fun, but to not impact the performance around from there. So, you know, um, so any resource protected with the same token they can actually get to. So think about um, authentication tokens like a stamp ticket. The user retains access as long as that token remains valid. But once the user logs out, quits an app, the token's invalidated. So, um, you know, at that point, then they need to uh, re-authenticate themselves around, around from there. So in terms of sort of seeing what was happening underneath there, it's not really overly exciting to actually view, but the point I want to show is that Internet Insights picked this up so we can see there. So again, sort of around uh, 1655, we saw this. And what it actually manifests itself in, so you can see the agents there started to sort of make the, trying to make the connections come through from there. And then what they actually had when they were going to, and I've got the sort of sorted then on Cloudflare on the right-hand side there, as Cloudflare as the, um, the server network, and so what it actually sort of came in from there is they were showing themselves as server timeouts. So it's also service unavailables and service timeouts are there, meaning we actually couldn't get through and make connections coming on uh, onto that system. So that's how it come down. It's an important point I want to sort of say there and show that is because, uh, you know, we talk about the service delivery chain a lot and we talk about this concept of all the dependencies of the coming into, into play. If I actually fail that first step, trying to authenticate myself on, or I'm trying to validate my service token as I actually go into there, um, this is where I'm actually going to uh, uh, start to see the system break down. I'm not going to get access to it. So irrespective of any network or performance issue across in there, I just actually can't get onto the system itself. Okay, so what actually happened here? Now, Cloudflare to be uh, congratulated here because they issued a really nice detailed post-incident blog, and we'll put the link uh, to that in the, uh, in, the, in the show notes there. So what actually start to talk about in there is this, uh, uh, this change where it sort of overwrote the, tech, the, uh, the, the token metadata. So we talked about the service tokens being this stamped ticket so I could actually sort of get back in and out from there. When they actually overwrote it, they actually had this problem there where they then couldn't reconnect, this couldn't be used. So especially the token was invalidated across from there. So as they had to get back from there, they actually had to manually restore 
um, the, the tokens, had to restore the data that came across from there. Now, I said up front there was two services or two areas that were impacted from there. So effectively, the tokens being used for Cloudflare services, they're able to manually restore those. Um, but the, 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 the ones that are actually from an external system or, or connecting from an external system, so they were using Cloudflare for their uh, service token authority around from there, they actually had to restore that from backup. So they had to roll it back. Because I said, they actually recognized what was going on. They, made, they did the change and they backed it out. Uh, just this restoration process was a problem that took them two hours, but they identified very quickly what had happened. So that visibility came across from there. And again, the point I want to reiterate about this is that we talk about a service delivery chain. Okay, so that's really interesting. And, and, and the thing I said about this, we talk about this service delivery chain coming from there so that every part of that chain is required to perform seamlessly. So you have this optimal digital experience around from there. So in this case, we had this situation, one where I'm accessing the service itself, but also I'm using that token for the third party uh, system or app, uh, application data between a uh, um, uh, external data center and a cloud service or cloud provider around from there. I'm actually sort of failing at that first stage. So I actually couldn't get in, into there. So therefore I'm gonna be impacted around from there. So moving on from there, let's take a, uh, a look at another configuration misstep. This time is Slack. We're talking about this trio, so they were in no particular order. It was just the sort of the way that, uh, that they sort of came out from there. But on January 25th, um, around 3.20 or between, I should say, 3.20 p.m. and 3.46, um, which would have been around 7.20 a.m. Pacific. So what it turned out to be that Slack were sort of unable to load messages and threads. Uh, this was reported sort of globally from there. Uh, some people couldn't preview files. You couldn't send uh, messages. Relatively short period of time. Uh, 26, uh, 26 minutes, uh, but it did have these global impacts. Uh, but there may have been, users could have been alerted to the uh, the fact the issues because they were sent email notifications about the presence of new messages, but they hadn't shown up in the application itself. Now, Slack actually sort of identified the issue um, and they traced it to a configuration change that they said impacted uh, usability. Uh, but they said it was a, um, a, an internal change um, and as soon as again they identified it, they started reverting it immediately. They rolled it back, and once this was reverted, it was um, uh, resolved for users. Now, because of how we saw this impacting in the application itself, it's obviously something to do, or we assume it's something to do with the application configuration itself around from there. Now, that could have been some internal system, such as we're authenticating internally, we're making a call to a particular database, uh, we're doing a refresh, or, or whatever, something around those, those systems there but from a back-end perspective around from there. So network connectivity at the time was all good and everything can actually get to there. So if I'm looking essentially at it from a network perspective, there's nothing to see here. We sort of can move on from there. But again, because my application is starting to do that, and if I actually need to see something very specific within the application to actually see that, because again, it func parts of the application itself that weren't functioning. So I could load the screen and I can actually even work around, as I said, by just resetting or refreshing um, my Slack instance on my desktop there, so I can actually get the stuff coming back from there. So for all intents and purposes, it's actually working. So you wouldn't necessarily have seen some sort of alert coming out from there. But if you had a specific test running to actually go through that process to do something from there, then again, that would have come back with some sort of status code or excessive wait time that you'd have actually been able to sort of track and see that down from there. So really, again, it's all sort of getting ahead of the, uh, the, the changes that happen. Um, and again, we, you know, there, there's processes in place, but how would, I, how would I put this onto my own environment? So if I'm actually making a change to a system in my own environment, if I have the ability to build a transaction test uh, across from there, then I can actually verify various processes of that step going through from there. 
Now, if I can actually sort of tie that into specifically when I press uh, a go on my configuration change, because remember we're dealing in agile world here, everybody's sort of making changes across the time. Um, we, you know, I can have instant recognition that this is sort of failed because I'm testing that functionality that I've effectively just changed. So we're starting to get this new paradigm or hoping to move into a new paradigm where as the developers are sort of building out sort of code and, and functional tests, then they could actually have this test sitting alongside. So when you actually press go before you push as part of your own DevOps QA process, you can actually sort of validate, is my change going to cause issues and get this instant feedback. So therefore, you know, in, in some of these, we were talking two hours, some of these were talking 26 minutes. There's always that lag. And, and that's not to say that when you actually make a change, you can't roll it, uh, the, the effects rolling back. So as we saw with the Microsoft one, for example, where they identified the, the, uh, the change and they tried to roll it back from there, or they did revert the change back from there because of the nature of the issue. It meant they effectively had to go through the whole process again, which meant we had this elongated duration of impact. Uh, when continuing on that, uh, on February the 7th, Microsoft experienced a second significant outage in that two weeks period, being that on January 25th, um, which we've actually sort of documented and gone into there. Um, we have also done a, a podcast, the Internet Report podcast, on this outage from there. So I just want to sort of take you through the process. But if you've looked at that before the January 25th outage, you're looking at this, you'd be very, um, you'd, you'd be forgiven for thinking I'm looking at the same outage there because of the, the pattern looked very similar. But these were two completely different outages that, that occurred from there. This wasn't a repeat process that went on from there. So starting around sort of 3.55 on the 7th, this is where we start to see it. Now, interestingly enough, I want to sort of highlight there, it was a global impact around from there. So we can see the issue starting to in, in, across there. And we're impacting sort of 100 servers at that, that moment in time, observing 100 servers having impact. The other thing to be uh, rather, uh, mindful of here is we're actually looking specifically at a series of uh, Outlook services. So Microsoft Office 365, uh, Microsoft Online, and those ones around from there. But I do start to see sort of, you know, impact around from there in terms of sort of agent locations or where I'm seeing this impact, uh, but predominantly in North America. So this is sort of where it looks like it appeared to start around from there. As we sort of get into the height of it, so, we, so as you move into the second period, we, again, we start to see the number of services impact. We start to see the footprint grow, as it were. So as the outage increases, we start to see um, the number of servers impacted increase uh, before we start to come down this period there. But importantly, why I want to mention that is obviously we're still predominantly North American focused. But if I start to come down through and start to see the numbers of servers impacted or locations agents impacted um, from different areas, it sort of spreads across that way there. So my global footprint was there from the start, but it's actually almost seems to be sort of impacting more areas globally uh, than it was when it first came around. Again, manifest itself. We're talking about specifically um, uh, Microsoft. Uh, um, Outlook and associated services to that. So a very specific application, again, different from the previous one where we took out a whole range of uh, services. This one was uh, just looking at the application. And again, if I go into the network, there is some network outages there, but there isn't, again, nothing associated specifically with Microsoft themselves. So this is, again, we can actually sort of say we're looking at application. And indicative of that really is the fact we started seeing sort of you know, these service timeout areas, we're actually seeing stuff coming back, which means we're sort of seeing um, uh, connectivity coming into the system itself. Now, if we actually then sort of go into the application that's there, and this is when just looking at one instance, and I do this because I want to sort of just to see what happened. 
the outage sort of manifests itself in the user's ability to send and receive search for emails uh, with connections. So timing out, we saw the times out, we saw a number of HTTP uh, 500 service unavailable message around from there, uh, but there was nothing into the network. Now, if I actually look at this from a, um, a transaction perspective as well, a page load to see what happened, this is effectively before the outage occurred. So I can sort of see everything around there. I can see what happens. I'm going to my, uh, my Outlook page and I do a 302 redirect, actually redirect around from there and everything looks good. Now, if I start to go into that next surface, sorry, the next interval of the incident where it starts to occur, what suddenly happens now is what I actually see is I still do my redirect, but now I can't find a server. I actually can't get to this. I get this excessive timeout in this case. Or in some cases, I get the service unavailable. I get the 500 message coming back at that point. Keeping with our theme of uh, change and, uh, and sort of rollback there, uh, Microsoft Rover confirmed that a change to some of their Outlook systems was a major contributor to the outage itself. Um, and to resolve this, they undertook targeted restarts to parts of infrastructure. Um, and then to restore the connectivity for the users there. Now, really, this is where we start to see that service recover, but also at the same time, it wasn't quite as dramatic as a time coming down um, that we saw when we we're recovering from the BGP um, uh, issue on January 25th. And what we suddenly saw was some of those increases coming in from there because this was this right knock on impact. So when we were restarting a service, there may have been a service uh, in a different country which wasn't impacted, but because of the way things were connected, this restart actually caused that system to be, uh, the infrastructure to be impacted as it was, as it sort of came back online there. So I know we really just scratched the surface there. As I said, sort of, um, if you like more detailed discussion, uh, please check out the Internet Podcast. We'll put the details of the, uh, the link in the, the show notes below. Okay, before we go, I just want to touch on a couple of outages I think are worth a mention. The first of these uh, impacted the online payment system, Square. So full disclosure, the reason I'm bringing this one up is it was one of those time of day things that due to timing seemed to have a larger impact on the Oceania region. All right, so global impact. So it's a global outage, but the impact felt more in Oceania because the outage was starting around 7.54 a.m. Australian Eastern time. Uh, so it's on the 7th of February there. Uh, and why that's significant is because it was small businesses, cafes, they couldn't accept the contactless payments during this morning rush when it was going across from there. Now, what then becomes interesting with this outage then, again, this is sort of one of those ones from a change, but the, the, the issue, um, the source of it appears to be with a third party, potentially a sort of a, a payment rails provider, um, although the, the, the actual root cause is still to be uh, better understood. But again, the, the fact of this is that this highlights this reliance on third party dependencies. You know, all these components need to go in. So again, everything within the Square system is working. We could get to it. We could get to the back end service. We could authenticate everything around from there. But this third party sort of uh, plugin or third party application around from there was sort of uh, 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 had an issue on it or some issue across from there. Again, which then caused the whole system to become um, um, non-functioning. So we actually couldn't complete the transaction, even though technically it was up and available. We actually couldn't go through and complete it. So the moral of that story is the chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And what you want to be able to do is to be able to have visualization and visibility across the entire service, service uh, uh, delivery chain. Now that might not necessarily be, mean that you have to be able to um, uh, specifically identify or instrument every part of that. But if I can understand that, all right, there's a call being made from there, I might wanna have a separate test that actually does that functionality from there or test that from there, if I don't wanna build something out that looks like a function perspective. But also I can actually take into account, okay, 
between this step and that step, there will be a wait of X milliseconds or X seconds. If that starts to increase, then I want to be able to sort of aware of it because then I'll start to have some sort of system failure across from there. Um, at least I can actually start to see. So things change with these third parties. And as long as I can get visualization around from it, and we've talked about this on a number of occasions, is that one of the main things I want to do is to identify who the responsible party is. As long as I can, I know there's an issue there, and I know what I can do, I can sort of start to take um, uh, steps to work around this, this situation as it occurs. And last, but by no means least, on February the 12th, uh, people in Philadelphia's Fishtown and Kensington was experiencing Xfinity service interruptions just ahead of the big game, where unfortunately Philadelphia Eagles were set to face off against the Kansas City Chiefs. So really sort of quite pertinent. Comcast uh, reported that they were able to restore the cable access uh, to, for a majority of the customers before it kicked off, but there was some sort of some still impact around from there. Comcast has since attributed to, to vandalism, noting that a fibre optic cable was severed in the Kensington section. So obviously it came back to some agrarian point. And we've talked about sabotage before and the fact then that it sort of impacts these uh, local areas themselves. So you know, it's quite localised. We had the cable cut in Marseille that sort of impacted access to some data, uh, data centres uh, that, that lost their connectivity coming in effectively to the world around from that, 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 that area there. Uh, so this sort of happens, it comes from there. There's a couple of things around from this. So it impacts that last mile uh, typically, but what also, there's different ways to restore the service. So if you think about here, and I'm gonna again, show my Australian bias there, um, and I'm sure this happens around everywhere else, is that you can have alternate systems. So if I actually lose my wet string dries out, that takes me to the internet, then I actually might connect into, it automatically rolls over, if the signal's too weak, it rolls over to a 5G service uh, on the mobile. So it actually maintains that connectivity coming across from there. So the point of this is that, Yes, obviously this was significant because of the timing and the location that it occurred from there. The impact itself, I'm going to, I'm going to be really horrible and say it was actually small impact around from there. But to those particular people, it was it was really, um, uh, really impactful and, and, and a huge deal trying to get back on from there. But what it highlights and why I've actually sort of brought it up around there is that, again, it's this, this ability to have sort of these... Um, multiple ways of getting around there. If I understand what's happening from there, I can actually mitigate around. I've talked about there, the ability to automatically cut over to a four or 5G uh, cell system so that I can actually maintain that connectivity. It may be that I have diverse routes coming out. So I'm actually using completely different carriers. Now, again, if I'm talking about last mile, um, it may be uh, this situation where um, even though I've actually sort of paved this diverse routing around from there, I'm actually same in the same pit and pipe structure. So you actually have to think and understand where I'm going through, who my peer relationships coming from there. The point is what I actually want to do is have the visibility of that. So that if I know this is where the fault lies, right, okay, I can kick it over. I said in my case, automatically come over and maintain connectivity. And now I'm no longer going over my fixed wireless. I'm now going over a 5G service around from there. to actually do that once the main cable signal is lost. So that's our show. Don't forget to like, subscribe and follow us on Twitter. As always, if you have questions, feedback, whether it be good, bad or ugly, or guests you'd like to see featured on the show, send us a note at internetreport at thousandice.com. So until next time, goodbye.